0: Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques, with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad.
1: Welcome back to yet another episode of the Reliability Matters podcast. I really appreciate you being here today. And thank you all for your wonderful support. Uh, We're approaching 15,000 downloads. I I celebrated when we hit 100, so you can imagine how I feel with uh, coming up on 15,000. I really appreciate your support. Uh, Thank you also for all of your comments and feedback and episode suggestions. Sometimes when you sit in front of a camera, you don't see anything back. You know, I don't see you. Uh, So it's really nice to know that you're out there uh, and Uh, through your downloads uh, of episodes and through your feedback to me. I really appreciate it. Let's talk about solder paste, shall we? Um, We haven't talked about solder paste in a little bit. We've talked about it a couple times over the last few years, but I'm hearing a lot of buzzwords. I'm hearing all about um, high reliability solder paste, which makes me wonder what's the regular solder paste about. Um, I'm hearing a lot of talk about low temperature and ultra, ultra low temperature solder paste. I'd like to know more about that. Um, And I have some technical questions uh, about that. So the best way to answer those questions is to bring in an expert. So my guest today is Paul Salerno. He holds an MBA with a specialization in finance and marketing from Rutgers Graduate School of Business. He's a global portfolio manager at McDermott Alpha Electronic Solutions with an expertise in product lifestyle cycle management and development of strategic technology roadmaps. We're going to ask him about the roadmap um, in a little bit. Uh, He is the uh, global surface mount uh, of roadmaps for global surface mount uh, technology business. Paul works with customers in both Europe and Asia and uh, in the automotive, computing, communications, consumer electronics markets, and a lot of that. Sounds like he has a lot on his plate. So, welcome, Paul. Thanks for being my guest today. I really appreciate you being here.
0: Thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate it as well.
1: Yeah, thank you. Uh, So, I understand and when I did some research, I saw an interview you did not too long ago, I think it was earlier this year, and also on your bio, um, that you are focused on a technology roadmap, uh, which is interesting. I always like to look into the future, right, Uh, and uh, see what direction we're going. And so tell me a little bit about what that technology roadmap is all about relative to your your business, and uh, what are you doing within the world of that roadmap?
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. So, yeah, I mean, I think ultimately, right, it, it, it's nothing unlike uh, most organizations out there, uh, which do have um, uh, technical expertise and and uh, um, commercial, commercially familiar folks who uh, who focus on really the strategic, long term planning uh, of our, our of our technology, right? So, understanding where we're going. Where the electronics assembly industry is going, and uh, and where we need to to stay competitive. So um, I think when you when you look at it from a, a very holistic view, um, my focus is in strategic long term planning, as well as the the product life cycle management side, where you you need to have products that meet both today's needs prepare you for the future needs um, so so addressing existing challenges as well as future challenges is kind of um, uh, the approach that you take when you you develop a, a good technology roadmap for your organization
1: so there are um several different species for lack of a better term species of of alloys or solder paste fluxes types um uh, alloy uh, constituents things like that um do certain industries gravitate toward one specific description or type or species of solder paste? So uh, do the automotive folks have a different requirement than the space folks and the aerospace folks and the commercial uh, folks, downhole, harsh environment, safe environment? Uh, Are there different market segments that gravitate to different products or is it kind of all the same and, and and they all have their, their, their favorites, but they're all kind of the same.
0: Yeah, and uh, no, that, that, that's actually a great question and a great point. Um, so many people assume high reliability translates to exposure to say a high temperature environment or a traditional high reliability market segment like automotive or defense or aero um, where products like, like the Inalot solder alloy Um, are widely adopted for for applications where operating temperatures are above maybe 120 Celsius and beyond. Um, But you also still need to think about other market segments where reliability is defined in a different way, such as in the low temperature space. Um, where, uh, where HRL, you know, our, our products, such as HRL series alloys, where you combine a traditional tin bismuth based, uh, alloy with micro alloying additions to, uh, improve reliability for applications that are even below a hundred Celsius. So it, it really is predicated a lot on, on the, the market segment and the solution, uh, for that given, uh, given customer's application.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Uh, Components are getting increasingly smaller, which is great for me because we're in the cleaning business. So the smaller components get, the closer to the board they are, the closer they are to each other, uh, the less residue that is tolerable on the assembly and and the more likelihood someone's going to clean. That separate um, with components. so, So that allows that's an opportunity for business for anyone in the cleaning industry. For your industry, as components are getting increasingly smaller and closer together, uh, and the pitch is almost non existent anymore, I mean, it's practically, you, you couldn't put a human hair between um, component uh, uh, pads now. How has that affected the solder paste industry? I know the cleaning industry has certainly affected it. It's more business, yeah. but it's also difficult uh, to clean um, these, these types of yeah. residues. So, um, in, in your industry, how has miniaturization? Uh, landed in, in your world?
0: Yeah, no, so, so um, when we think of, of high reliability, there's there's certainly the mechanical, the mechanical side of it, which is driven primarily by the solder alloy. But then there's the other side of reliability, which comes into play with the solder flux chemistry, um, and that's electrochemical reliability. Um, so, you know, by design, a, a, a solder flux is is supposed to be corrosive in the sense that it's it's supposed to clean and prepare the surface that it's going to be soldering for soldering. and uh, And so as we see these smaller, more densely uh, uh, designed packages and, and board designs, electrochemical reliability becomes more and more paramount. So designing a flux chemistry that's capable of withstanding, the requirements of a finer-pitched BGA component, or even um, even um, covered components like bottom-terminated components, where you have large areas of of um, uh, of solder paste in a uh, in a confined to a very small, tight space, uh, electrochemical reliability becomes paramount, and and so we've we've certainly had to rethink how you design uh, chemistries for, uh, for finer pitched, um, applications.
1: You know, I was going to ask you this a little bit later, uh, in this uh, conversation, but you mentioned BTC. So it's a little, it's pretty good segue. It used to be probably a couple years ago. It seemed all we talked about on the show was voiding. That was, that was the poster child of, of technical conversations. And, uh, you know, 30% voiding is okay. No, you can actually have 50%. I had someone tell me you can have 70% voiding. It's probably fine. You know, probably fine, doesn't really uh, sell machines. But um, but I, I get the, the context of it. Is voiding, you know, so 2020, or is it still a, a topic, a relevant topic of conversation today? Is it still a concern? Is it still being chased by companies like yours to, to reduce it even further?
0: Yep. Yeah, yeah, no it, Avoiding is, if I had to pick, top five conversations I have every single day
1: <laughs> it's still out there
0: it's it's, it's certainly there yeah yeah um, voiding is is paramount um, you know the reasons behind that and the philosophical reasons behind that we can we can debate that um, but ultimately our customers are driving us to to lower voiding and and reducing voiding levels um, if we just think about it from a very basic, simple-minded perspective, which is kind of how I think of things, um, you look at, uh, you, you, if you envision what a, a solder void looks like to the average person, um, it, it looks like an area where you have an air gap um, preventing a electrical contact, right? So you have a, 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 an insul- insulative type property in air, and you have a conductive metal in the areas where you don't have voiding. So in theory, right, uh, lower voiding um, translates to better uh, thermal management. Um, but I don't believe, and I, I think the industry in itself has kind of come to the conclusion that that number can can vary, right? And, and there really isn't a, an exact science as to what the um, target uh, – voiding levels should be. What I can tell you is that most of our customers would love zero voiding every day. Um, and, and, and as a, uh, a solder, solder paste supplier, we focus a lot of our energy on mechanisms and ways that we can help reduce uh, voiding. And some of it's in chemistry design and some of it is in process design. And we, we work with our customers every day on, on helping to, to optimize voiding for their application.
1: Yeah, it's funny when people are concerned about voiding, they're normally concerned, at least from my vantage point, of the intrametallic bond. They don't want the parts to fall off uh, mm-hmm. under a stress condition. They're concerned about heat dissipation. They're concerned about electrical conductivity. Yeah. Uh, what a lot of people don't realize is there's another concern. If you have too much voiding, you got a lot of residue under that under that part. Because mm-hmm. people think of a void as an absence of anything, and it is not a absence of anything. It's not a vacuum in that gap it's it's usually um flux residues that's usually what's causing the void that that an air not being able to escape but typically if you were to pull a component off uh, that has large voids on it you'll find residue in those voids and now in, in many cases it's benign because it's not it's not uh, mm-hmm. spanning two conductors right so other than maybe the chance of corrosion or something that it, it's you're not going to get an ecm event from that but it could outgas out and migrate out and and be problematic so uh from from a voiding standpoint from a contamination standpoint uh the lower the voiding the the less entrapped volatiles uh, underneath the component from a from an ecm perspective that's also um a reason to keep the debate alive i guess it's not going mm-hmm. away anytime soon
0: yeah yeah, yeah how- de- de- definitely and and you know it's, it's funny one of the the solutions that will work with customers who just Require such low voiding is to use uh, a, a solder preform, and uh, because when you think about a solder paste, right, it's it's fifty percent um, metal alloy by by volume, fifty uh, percent um, uh, flux. So if you can reduce the flux, which is the volatile outgassing generating the voiding during the reflow process, you can reduce that by using things like um, a, a solder preform. Then that's an option for you, um, and and it just depends on how important that that is for you, and and what you're willing to add to your SMT process.
1: Yeah, how do harsh environments affect uh, solder paste selection process? And the reason I ask that is with Internet of Things IoT, we're putting a lot of stuff out there that you know we're putting electronics in things that have historically never had electronics in them, and then we're taking those things, you know, as a wearable or or in a car or you know somewhere. Mm-hmm in the real world, the real harsh world. Um, so th- if I'm going to put something outside in a smart meter, for example, like electrical meter or an, on a wearable or in a car, am I going to think differently about my solder paste selection than if something's going to live in an Amazon server farm?
0: Yeah, a- absolutely you should. You should, right? Um, when the automotive industry is is certainly one of the the leaders in this space in in, in investigating uh what a a uh, saturated environment could do to a um, solder flux or or, or solder paste residue Um, and and so what we do is is quite often um we'll work with our uh customers to assess our chemistries for um reliability electrochemical reliability in in harsh environments that include high temperature, high humidity environments. Because if you think about it from the standpoint of, uh, like you said, a server farm, which is a very controlled environment versus an automobile where you have, um, you have this, this uh, exposure to moisture from the air. So um, when we do what was what considered an automotive damp heat test, right? You, you actually create a saturated environment for moisture to, to uh, embed itself on the the circuit board and assess the electrochemical uh, performance because when you have a corrosive flux residue in combination with a fine pitch or fine spaced um, uh, uh, PCB design in combination with moisture, you create an optimal scenario for electromigration. So you know, ma- making sure that you are accounting for the effect of, uh, of high humidity environments that are non-controlled is becoming incredibly important in, in the automotive industry and beyond, even the consumer space.
1: Excellent. So not too long ago, I watched a video of another solder uh, materials manufacturer. Uh, talk about their products, and, and it was a spin on a product I'd never really heard before. They were talking about how cleanable their no-clean solder paste was. And now all no-clean solder paste is cleanable. In fact, in terms of the number one type of flux that's being removed today, it's no-clean. That's not because everyone is removing no-cleans. That's just because pretty much everyone is using no-cleans, and those that have to clean are cleaning no-cleans, uh, which just makes a lot of logical sense to me. Now I've never really heard of a of a manufacturer promote a no-clean product that's easy to clean. Um, usually, if you want something easy to clean, go to an O A or or uh, something like that. Um, it it without giving away specifics because you know what they said may be entirely accurate or or it might just be a spin um, on a on a you know from their marketing department. I don't know, uh, but are there no-clean fluxes that are designed to be more easily cleaned, or are they all, do they all share the same, you know, they're, they can be a little bit difficult to clean. My experience is they're usually on the more difficult side to clean, very, very cleanable, but they, they, they're on the more difficult side because they have such low solids content and they rely on a profile, an oven profile being pretty, pretty accurate so you don't volatilize the, um, and polymerize the, the, um, materials too soon in the process and and that becomes a little bit more difficult to clean Uh, So from your perspective long question I realize but from your perspective are certain no cleans more easily clean than others or are they? Is that something that you guys even think about when you're when you're formulating a no clean or not? uh,
0: Right, it it, it depends on it it Depends on the application certainly, but I I would say overall right. It's a bit of a loaded question. Uh, No clean solder pastes are designed to be, well, no clean, right? So the, the the corrosive residue is designed specifically to be encapsulated uh, post reflow to prevent things like electromigration, right? Um, I think for high volume users, which is the most of the industry, um, you know, adding a, a cleaning step uh, typically outweigh is outweighed by the the benefits of using a no clean. Option um, certainly you can look to water-soluble chemistries as an option, um, where but you know the, the, the downside of that obviously is you have these highly active post-reflow residues that you don't really have the luxury of waiting for extended periods of time. So I think in principle the, the idea makes a lot of sense um, where you can uh, achieve the ability to use a product as a no clean or to to clean it um when when you feel that it's necessary uh but i think the other approach of it is to design chemistries which is is what what primarily what we focus on is design chemistries to um uh be designed for for no clean applications where you achieve the electrochemical requirements um, of a no-clean chemistry, uh, or of of a, of a um, with a traditional no-clean uh, chemistry over having to use a cleaning process. So, um, really challenging applications, uh, moving towards a or designing a chemistry that focuses on maximizing the the electrochemical reliability in a no-clean space is more important than a no clean that's cleanable uh, in, a, in a lot of cases and similarly you can look at that from a conformal coding standpoint where users would want to clean and you know we, you could focus chemistry design on on compatibility with no cleans so in theory sure a, a cleanable no clean is great um, and uh, and at times we we do certainly assess our chemistries for that as options for customers who do need it um, but is it something that we actively pursue over, uh, over, uh, being able to achieve the highest electrochemical reliability with a no clean paste? Then I would say, no, it's not something that we're, we're working towards.
1: Okay. That, that makes sense. Let's talk about the type solder paste types. Mm-hmm. They're, they're typed into type three, four, five, six, I don't know how high they go. Um, and obviously that has something to do with the Sphere size, right? The the powder size, uh, as I understand it. What's what are the differences between these types, and what um, circumstances would draw someone to a type five versus a type four versus a type six versus a type three?
0: Yeah. So um, yeah. So so powder types um, are like like you like you said is is basically a. Um, Uh, a measure of the the uh, powder size distribution in that given um, powder type so for example a type 4 solder paste would have powder sizes somewhere between 20 and 38 microns Um, that would be the general distribution Um, type 5s somewhere in the 15 to 25 micron and then as far out to type 7 type 8 where maybe you're, you're you have Powder sizes down to to as low as two to eleven micron sizes, um, and I think the advantage, obviously, from uh, uh, the standpoint of the user, is for ultra fine feature sizes and 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 smaller uh, um, product designs, is you, you with finer powder types, you get the ability to fill smaller aperture sizes. It's all about how can you fill that stencil with as much solder volume as, as possible to get a good solder joint? And so moving towards finer powder types, your Type 5, Type 6, Type 7, uh, allows you to more readily uh, achieve the volume transfer efficiency targets that you might have um, in your product design. Now, the disadvantage of that is you, you certainly need to account for that in your chemistry design because smaller powder sizes increase the surface area um, for the flux chemistry to do its job, which is to clean that surface and prepare it for soldering. And, uh, and so smaller powder sizes create an increased surface area which uh, creates challenges for the chemistry design. And, uh, and, and it's, it's, we have a, a very specific focus towards, towards achieving that while balancing the electrochemical requirements of a, uh, of a fine feature application.
1: Excellent. Let's talk a little bit about low-temperature solder and ultra-low-temperature solder. Sure. Uh, I understand, in principle, what they are. They, they, they melt at lower temperatures. They reflow. The, the peak temperatures can be lower. What would the reason be that one would choose a low-temperature solder, you know, back in the old days, eutectic, it was 363 degrees, right? It was like 362, it was solid, 363, it was wet, something, something to that effect. Um, now I'm hearing reflow temperatures uh, as low as, you know, 150 C in, in some cases. So uh, what would drive people toward a low temperature solder or an ultra low temperature solder? What are the benefits and what are, uh, what is not practical about that?
0: Yeah. Um, so yeah it's 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 a great question and it it really it's 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 a kind of an interesting point in the industry's evolution uh when we think about the the use of low temperature solder uh alloys uh i think historically you have your tin bismuth eutectic solder which is solidus liquidus point is somewhere around 138 celsius um and They've been historically plagued by um, factors such as brittleness, which is why they weren't widely adopted in in say most consumer type applications um, where where drop shock could be a requirement. Um, and so where the industry has really pushed towards is the uh, the movement towards ductile low temperature alloys such as the, the you know our HRL series where, Uh, We consider ourselves kind of a leader in this space uh, where you combine micro-alloying additions to your traditional tin-bismuth-based alloys to enhance the performance. Um, And the goal always is, how can I get reliability uh, similar to that of SAC305, but reflow at a lower temperature? And, and why would I need to do that so so the reason you would need to, to reflow at lower temperatures is um, is is because these component packages are increasing the die to package ratio for starters and they're getting larger and more complex so during the traditional sac 305 reflow process where you're reflowing as high as 240 250 Celsius um, you do create a volatile environment where you can have warpage of the component in the um, in the reflow process, and that creates warpage-induced defects such as non-wet opens, head and pillow, um, and and other uh, other factors which could reduce the reliability of the solder uh, of the uh, resulting um, product design, and so. The idea of being able to reflow at lower peak reflow temperatures, thus mitigating the warpage-induced defects, has become um, a a trend in the industry um, where you need to develop high-rel, low-temp solder alloys for for these type of applications.
1: Excellent. So one of the concerns I would have, maybe it's valid, maybe it's not. You can help straighten me out. Uh, with low temperature is uh, we, we did a study. We're in the process of duplicating that study with um, an analytical laboratory, Foresight, in Kokomo, Indiana. And uh, what the study is showing is that they, we took boards, uh, test boards. I don't know if they were B-52s or some type of test board with connectors and surface mount components on it. And we reflowed them using a no-clean solder paste at the recommended um, peak temperature limits. And uh, this peak temperature was 250 degrees. And, mm. then, uh, and then we extracted contamination from under certain key points of the part and ran it through on chromatography, determined what the contamination was, what the levels were, and the board uh, fell into the acceptable category in terms of contamination. We found contamination, but none of it was problematic. Then we reflowed identical boards with the same material, but we lowered the peak reflo- reflow temperature by 4%, 10 degrees, So we hit 240 instead of 250, 4%, uh, and duplicated the test, extracted the contamination, ran it through ion chromatography. We had residue increases of up to 600% in various parts of the board. Some were 150%, 200%, 300%, 600%. But pretty much all across the board, we had measurable detectable residues. Some of those um, amounts were in the fail category. You know, those boards would have suffered some form of, of uh, electrochemical migration event. Um, and that was with, you know, because the peak temperature was lowered by 4%. Now, I understand that's all relative. It was 4% of 250. Uh, now, I don't know if uh, running a ultra-low paste at 150 would yield good results, and it would have to be off by 4%. yield bad results but i do know that heat is our friend and our enemy heat is our friend in terms of burning out the bad actors uh, in in the uh, the volatiles and activators and things like that in the flux um it's also our enemy because if you cook it too much you can polymerize the flux make it more difficult to clean so this is fine balance but clearly reflow temperature is key if you're not going to clean the board it it's it's much more tolerant if your concern is not contamination, um, you can be off by four percent, and I don't think anyone would tell you your intermetallic bonds are compromised, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think you're, you're still you still have a good solder joint at four percent off, but but clearly from a contamination standpoint, it's a concern. So what's your experience with uh, lowering reflow temperatures and still providing the proper heat to activate, the flux and to burn off the, uh, the volatiles and the bad actors. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it's a, it's a good point. Um, what I would say is that the answer is always in the chemistry design. You, you cannot take a sack reflow designed chemistry and use it with a low temperature alloy in a low temperature reflow process because of the exact reason you, you noted. You will have electrochemical issues because the activator packages are designed for higher temperatures and therefore they're not effectively burning off and uh, create um, create uh, challenges with electromigration. So when we develop next generation low temperature chemistries, um, we we put a sp- specific emphasis on designing for electrochemical reliability. So the, the the chemistry design is completely different than what you would see in a uh, traditional SAC305 chemistry package. Um, and actually, interestingly, we 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 have a paper that we're going to be presenting at SMTAI later this year, specifically on this subject um, for low-temperature solder. So I think it'll be uh, it's, it's interesting timing for that question for sure.
1: I'll make a point to come and see that. Uh, I'll be there as well. Uh, so I was several years ago, I was hired as a, a court-approved expert witness. We had a contract mm-hmm. manufacturer and an OEM tied up in litigation, and it was about uh, contamination. and um, th- th- this particular company built a product that was going to be uh, put uh, into the ground throughout uh, various locations in North America. Um, and the part would be operated by a battery. And not connected to an exterior power source, and it would send a radio signal to a nearby receiver. Uh, and because it was going into the ground, uh, they they wanted to protect it from the evils of the harsh environment around it. So they they potted it, right? And this could they could have hermetically sealed it. It doesn't really matter. The point is, it was potted. It was protected from the outside world. Um, and then they had corrosion and, and conductive anodic filamentation, CAF, and they had uh, surface dendritic growth. They had all sorts of contamination-related issues. And they couldn't figure out what went wrong. Well, we know what went wrong. But the, their logic was, as long as they protect it from, as long as they protect this assembly from things outside coming in, they'll be safe. And what they didn't realize is they basically created the sarcophagus, <laughs> where all the sins of the process could not get out. And their board probably would have been better off. It probably ultimately would have failed for another reason, but they would have been better off at least temporarily had they not sealed it because then at least they could allow natural outgassing of the moisture. And moisture was the catalyst here. You can get by with, with uh, ionic residue. You might get uh, other things, but you can get by with ionic residue. But without moisture, it doesn't form that catalyst to, to form ECM. Uh, so... Um, you know, they did not allow moisture to outgas. They trapped everything in there, and because they had a poor cleaning process, that was enough to start the whole chain of events. So are there, if someone is not going to clean and they're going to hem- medically steal or pot uh, their board, are there materials that they should lean toward that might be better than others for that environment?
0: Yep, yeah. I, the answer to that is absolutely right, it, it, especially if you're going to go use a, a no clean process. Um, I w- I would say take it from from the, the perspective of, l- let's say, the mobile space um, where we we run into this challenge with electrochemical reliability, particularly on low to no standoff components. Um, and and you, you actually have exactly what you said, which is you get this trapped flux residue underneath that package. Um, and in a hermetically sealed environment, what tends to happen is not only do you not create an avenue for those volatiles to escape, but you do have built up moisture inside, which adds to the uh, uh, potential for electrochemical reliability. So we actually we developed a chemistry OM372 that was specifically for applications such as this, where you have a, uh, you require ultra uh, high electrochemical reliability in, um, in a covered component atmosphere, which sounds very similar to, to the example you showed, you explained, uh, which was under litigation, where, uh, you know, on a much more smaller scale, our situation, which is focused on, on the needs of a, a component um, or a, a product design, yours was on a, a grander scale of uh, of uh, a, an entire device, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's good. It's good to know. It, they should have known that. <laughs> they could have saved a lot of money uh, had they known that before. Um, when it comes to traditional solder paste printing, traditional meaning stencil, there yeah. are hundreds, maybe thousands, but certainly hundreds of, different brands and types and varieties of solder paste to choose from um, one can fine tune their needs pretty pretty uh, uh, finely when it comes to dispensing like jet printing for example the choices are much more limited uh, so do you see more of the industry moving toward dispensing solder pastes i, I know there are limitations in speed and throughput things like that but with uh, North America kind of known more for variety than quantity, um, do you see the adoption of, of uh, jet printing technology or, or dispensing technology gaining even more traction? And if so, there are definitely limitations on the varieties of solder paste that can squeeze through a dispensing nozzle. So uh, will that increase if that market increases as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, it's, definitely, it, it's definitely becoming a factor, um, certainly from the standpoint of, of finer feature sizes uh, where you, you don't have the luxury of, of being able to um, to use your traditional squeegee uh, printing process. So I, I, well, I would break it up into two, to, to, uh, I would say two distinct, Subsegments, if you will, um, you have your traditional air displacement, which which is is probably less reliant on on chemistry design uh, and more reliant on finding the right um, viscosity of the chemistry of the chemistry that you're using for that application. And then, alternatively, you go to the piezo side, such as 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 jetting um, technology. Where you specifically need to design chemistries that are capable of withstanding shear forces that traditional squeegee printing doesn't see. So your your chemistry platform that you're building off of needs to to be completely altered for a jetting application. And and I think that's that's part of the challenge um, in in that in that space where you have microdispense and jetting. Type uh, type applications and and certainly something that we we've put a lot of resources into and and supporting.
1: So say you have a solder paste uh, brand called you know gnarly one hundred and one, gnarly one hundred and one sold for traditional paste applications. Can gnarly one hundred and one also be used in a, a dispense or does it gnarly one hundred and one have to be one hundred and two? Does it have to? Do you have to physically change something? to make it work with the dispenser, or are certain already available pace just automatically compatible with dispensing?
0: I would say in a traditional uh, air-type displacement dispense mechanism, you can probably use Gnarly 101. But in a piezo application such as jetting, you, you would need to use an, an alternative chemistry.
1: Right. It has to sure. be formulated for that particular purpose. It
0: has to be, yeah. Okay. The design right. has to be built for the application.
1: Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. It's long been said by many, I'm sure you've heard this before, and maybe even take exception to it, but people say this, that pretty much all reliability issues start at the printer. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if that's true, but that's the, the process people like to blame. Um, whether it's true or not, what mistakes are assemblers making in the printing process or in the solder paste selection so that whole Mm -hmm. genesis of the of the soldering uh, application what are they what mistakes are they making that would lead to common failures that you see in the field and how can they avoid it
0: yeah i mean i I would say i I would almost argue that it actually starts even before that from the surface finish of the component and the the uh, uh um the board that you are going to be soldering right um so you know, one of the, the, the major benefits that we have is is uh, we work closely with our McDermott alpha circuitry team um, to, to understand that interaction and that interface where solder meets the uh, um, the, the surface finish, right? And And understanding that uh, intermetallic form- formation is really where, a lot of reliability, you know, tends to start. Then, alternatively, you have from the printing process. You're absolutely right. Um, you know, targeting specific solder volumes, the ability of the chemistry to fill the aperture, the, the the consistency and repeatability of solder volume, are all incredibly important factors that generate a good intermetallic and a good. Resulting fillet, which leads to uh, reliability in your end application post reflow.
1: Let's um, let's get in the car, get on your roadmap, and head toward the future. What does the future hold in terms of of uh, soldering materials, in your opinion? Where are we going?
0: Yeah, you know, the, I think what's interesting is is um, I think you'll see more and more, um, uh, let's say, niche-type alloys for specific applications. I think 10 years ago, it was, uh, it was kind of foreign to introduce a new alloy beyond SAC 305, and now suddenly, uh, in order to meet the demands of the electronics world for more and more complex assemblies, you are starting to see the wide adoption of of alloys that are outside the traditional baseline alloy because they can't either achieve the reliability requirements, they can't achieve the um, uh, uh, they can't mitigate the the product design challenges with uh, larger uh, package sizes. Uh, there's the need for, like we said, lower temperature, higher operating temperature environments. Um, so I, I think you'll see more and more acceptance of, of, of um, non-traditional alloys in the, the certainly in the high rail space, and I think there's also a, a massive movement towards greener technology, um, which is is you know using the right alloying elements that are safe for the environment, and and uh, and I think you know. Uh, organizations are really accepting that and requiring it in many instances um, for for their end applications. So uh, the movement towards more greener technology, more environmentally friendly combination of, of alloying um, technology being accepted and more broadly adopted, and uh, and and always, you know, uh, the the industry is going to push us and guide us based on their their end application or their their uh, market segment. So, you know, we we have to think of things differently. The needs for automotive are not the needs for mobile, which are not the need for computing. You know, and and we we have to approach each one of those segments differently. And and, uh, and I think uh, the, the the industry is always keeping us moving to that next level.
1: And that there'll be no end to that. Um, there'll always be a next level with this business. Uh, that, that time has uh, proven that over the, the many many decades, you know, we we've been building circuit boards, right? So it's. Uh, I think there's there's no uh, secret that whatever is common today will be yesterday's news <laughs> tomorrow. You know, quite literally. So, uh, Paul, I really appreciate you being here today. Thanks so much for your insight and for your knowledge and wisdom uh, when it comes to. Um, uh, soldering materials uh thanks for educating me and uh thanks for um educating my audience i'll put uh, paul's information in the show notes so i'm sure paul you wouldn't mind if people reached out to you Is, of course yeah. put yeah. you on the spot i mean it's hard to say no now right <laughs> Yeah. Can't say no, no. <laughs> don't call me uh so uh, we'll put paul's information on the show notes uh, so if you're listening on um your phone uh, in your car on the treadmill wherever um you can go to um The show notes, uh, part of it, wherever you get your podcasts uh, from, uh, they'll have show notes there, and you'll be able to get uh, Paul's information. And uh, in the meantime, I uh, would like to again thank Paul for being my guest today. It's been very informative, and um, I'll uh, see you in Minneapolis in November, right at SMTAI. In a few short weeks, yeah. A few short weeks, yes, yes. Uh, Let's let's hope that let's hope that happens. I'm. I'm jonesing for a real show. I'm jonesing to see someone other than a bunch of pixels on the other side. So I
0: agree. I agree. Yeah. Well, I, I thank you for having me, Mike. I, I appreciate this. This is a uh, a very like like we talked about is this very interesting uh, uh, endeavor that you have here with this podcast, and I'm glad we can support it in a small way.
1: Yeah, in a big way. Thank you very much. I really appreciate
0: it, Paul. Thanks,
1: Mike. Thanks for listening or watching the Reliability Matters podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and so many more. Also, be sure to check out my other podcasts, including the Concept to Creation podcast, where I feature conversations with entrepreneurs within the electronic assembly space and the Innovations and Technology podcast, where we discuss innovative products within our industry. All three shows are also available in video format. Check out the Reliability Matters or Concept to Creation or Innovations in Technology podcasts on YouTube. Just search the show's name and you can find all three shows or go to MikeConrad.com. That's Conrad with a K. All three shows also appear there. Again, thanks for being part of my podcast family. I appreciate you being here. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay happy. And of course, keep doing it right. See you again soon.
0: Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of Reliability Matters.